The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. This is a reading from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 19. This is God's holy word. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and to the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he has said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy And himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old. Of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the other pastors, and I add my welcome uh, to Will's this morning. It's good to be with you to open God's word together. And we are in the middle of a three-year Renew campaign. And as was mentioned last week, And our desire to see God bring renewal to this beautiful place that God has entrusted to us, but more importantly, to our own hearts, we are studying, taking the month of, excuse me, the month of October, as we did last year and as we will do next year, Lord willing, to study the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah. And in these chapters, Isaiah provides a pathway for renewal for God's people. And like Israel who was facing exile and living in very troubled times, we too find ourselves living in turbulent times and we can often feel as though we are a fish out of water or someone who is a foreigner outside of our true home. But Isaiah reveals how we can experience a fresh wind of renewal and of restoration 
as God's beloved people amidst living in a broken and fallen world. And so as we open God's word this morning, let us come not only with expectation, but also anticipation and a sense of wonder for all that God can do in and through this living and active word. So let's pray and then we will dive in. Heavenly Father, your word, may it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Would you keep us from empty religion and simply going through the motions this morning? Would you come now with power by your spirit, tending to your word, applying it to our hearts so that we might be changed? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the last battle, when the unicorn enters true Narnia at the end of C.S. Lewis's famous series, he bursts out with excitement and exclaims, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. Can you relate to that heartache Aching for a place that we've never been, the heavenly home that we were made for, a place where faith will one day turn into sight, where prayer will one day turn into eternal praise. That sounds great on paper, doesn't it? But then there's the reality of life full of relational brokenness full of cultural upheaval and war and spiritual struggle and political turmoil. That's where we reside. And do you ever feel like any hope for real change, lasting change, feels elusive because it seems like the values of the kingdom of God are way out there. They're remote and far from us. Maybe you've kind of resigned yourself to see life akin to sitting in the doctor's office, just waiting to be called back. You're just biding your time until that day finally comes. See, the tension for the believer is in how we live according to the values of our eternal home, but a home that we've never seen and never physically been before. But the reality is there is tremendous hope for our lives to be renewed here and now while we await that day when full and complete transformation will happen. And Isaiah 63 points us to the renewal that can take place in the lives of God's people. And we see here the pathway for true repentance in the hearts, uh, pathway for renewal in the hearts of God's people. We see it comes by way of at least three things here this morning from this text. First, it comes as we recount God's covenant love and mercy in salvation. And we'll see that in verses 7 through 9. But it also comes as we will lament our rebellion and we uh, see and embrace the kindness of God that comes through his discipline to lead us to repentance. And then finally, we see that our hearts experience renewal when we cling to the covenant promises of God and we cry out for his mercy in the midst of our failure. So since we're parachuting here into the book of Isaiah these last couple of weeks, we're not going to be able to dig too deep into the weeds. We want to see the themes and the the pattern of renewal that is placed here in these passages. Now in the first six verses that uh, precede what Will just read, God offers hope and he offers comfort to his chosen people by telling them of the victory that's going to come over their enemies through the anointed conqueror. And through Isaiah, God speaks of this coming day of vengeance that the warrior will bring when all of his people's enemies will experience judgment and justice will finally prevail. 
And in light of this future vision, Isaiah offers a prayer, beginning in verse 7. As he looks upon God's past faithfulness to Israel, and he cries out to God for his mercy in their present troubles that they find themselves in. Now as Israel is in exile, it's important for them not only to be renewed by the hope of a a future hope that is coming, but also to look back and to remember what God has done in their midst. And in verse 7, Isaiah writes, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that He has granted them according to His compassion and according to the abundance of His steadfast love. Now from the beginning, when God called the nation of Israel to be His chosen people, it was not because there was anything inherently special or good about them. They were actually a tiny nation. They didn't have military prowess. But it was because God set his gracious and loving kindness upon them to call them to himself. And he said, even as he entered into covenant with them and was renewing that covenant back in Exodus 34, he said to them, the Lord passed before them and he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Isaiah is marveling here at the mercy of God poured out to the people of God. And throughout Israel's history, God remained steadfast, not only in his pursuit of them, but his loyalty to them and his provision for them. And in light of the coming judgment of God, Israel is to recount God's past acts of faithfulness in order that it would create this deeper gratitude and thankfulness for all that God has done for them. And as they recount the faithful acts of God, they were to do so also because it would keep them from forgetting. See, since the fall of mankind, every person that has walked this earth has suffered from spiritual amnesia. We easily forget the clear and tangible ways that God has provided for us and been faithful to us in our lives. Not the least of which, which is his greatest act of steadfast love and mercy that he's displayed through sending his son to atone for sin for sinners. See, God was at the center of Israel and their story. And he claimed them as as his own, making covenant with them. This is even why Israel filled the Ark of the Covenant with mementos to remind themselves of what God had done in their past. And the importance of remembering is no less true for us today as believers as it was for Israel. We need to have tangible reminders of God's love and care for us so that we don't forget Because here's the reality of forgetfulness. It happens slowly and subtly, just like a ship that's out at sea. You don't have to do anything for it to drift. It just goes with the wind and with the waves. And because, as we'll see, when our memory fails, obedience falters. And in verse 8, God speaks to the fact that Israel, His chosen people, He set His electing love upon them. And as their Savior, He joins Himself to them. And he uses this reminder of the covenant language that has been all throughout the Old Testament. I will be their God and they will be my people. And because of God's covenant love and mercy to Israel, there's this expectation that gratitude will come out of their hearts in response with fidelity and obedience to God. This is God's assumption. We heard it read where he says, they will be children who do not deal falsely. In light of all that God has done for them and the ways that he's shown his steadfast love. And then furthermore, in verse 9, we see how God's steadfast love that began in choosing them and saving them, it also identifies with them. 
In verse 9, he says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. You see what God's doing here? He's reminding them of how he identifies with them and where they are. He's not a distant God who is remote, but he's actually actively involved with his people even in their troubles. In other words, when God's people experience hurt, he not only knows about it, but he enters into that hurt with them. He's a God who knows what it means to suffer. He's a compassionate father who enters into the struggles of his children. And there is no greater evidence of this engagement in identifying with his people's struggles than through the suffering of sending his son. Because even Jesus, the suffering servant, as he's called just a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 53, he entered into our oppression, into our affliction as he came to mediate for our greatest need on the cross, sin. Christ knew what it was like to suffer and to experience the trials and tribulations of this fallen world. And being so intimately connected with his children, God acts to provide deliverance for them through his son. Did you notice in verse 9 how many times the, the pronoun he is used to mentioning to, of God? He was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love, in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them. Just like a mother who carries her child with all the tenderness that that's involved, God carries his children each step of their journey. He's the epitome of the engaged father. And Jessica and I, are, we're in the throes of parenting three teenagers out of our four children. And those of you who have had teenagers, you know, as your children get older, they start needing you less. They become more independent. And this can be hard for some parents. There can be this grieving process. Because there's this tension between knowing that you don't want to smother your children and keep them dependent upon you. Because you know the ultimate goal is for them to be independent adults. But see, God shepherds his children a little differently than we parent our own. Because God never comes to his children at some point and says, all right, you're on your own. Hope that goes well for you. Let me know how it turns out. No, he desires for us to remain fully dependent upon him continually so that he can work in us and carry us along the way. This doesn't mean that we don't mature in our faith, though. We do grow in the grace and the knowledge of the gospel, but pivotal to that maturation process is recognizing our deep need of dependence upon him. Because see, spiritual autonomy leads to rebellion and devastation as we see its results in where Israel is right now. But spiritual maturity leads not to independence, but greater repentance and dependence upon God. But the only way that we're moved to deeper repentance and dependence upon God is as we remember his covenant love and mercy that has accompanied us all along our path. One pastor speaking of the importance of remembering, he says this, he says, When you actually remember God, you do not sin. The only way we ever sin is by suppressing God, by forgetting God, by tuning out his voice and listening to other voices. We actually, when we remember, we experience change. And this idea of remembering that, that we're seeing here is not just an idea of nostalgia, of kind of looking back and going, oh yeah, I remember that. 
No, it is a heart-level, spirit-empowered, intentional meditating upon God's past faithfulness to us as evidence in His goodness and His trustworthy character in our lives. But how often do we stop? Do we stop to take inventory and look back and be reminded of how God has been walking with us, being faithful to us, administering His provision in our lives over and over? See, recounting what God has done in our lives, it leads to greater hope for the future. And just as with Israel, our past history is a revelation of God's character and His work, and it provides us hope, not only now, but also in the future. And we see in these three verses in 7 through 9 that Israel's lacking in nothing. God has chosen them. He's brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He's walked them across the Red Sea and brought them into the Promised Land. He's provided food for them. And what's true for God's people under the Old Covenant is only heightened in the New Covenant. Each one of us here who professes Christ are not lacking in anything that we need. God has provided everything for our salvation and our provision, and He promises to continue to do so. As Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And what is our response to be in light of this? That we respond out of immense gratitude, with humble obedience to the God who is worthy of our praise and adoration for what He has done for us. But sadly, we begin to drift. We begin to forget. We begin to pursue our own desires and our own pathway leading to rebellion. And next, we learn that true renewal in our hearts only comes as we lament our rebellion and we embrace the kindness of God's discipline to bring us to repentance. In verses 10 through 14, Isaiah speaks of Israel's rebellion and the consequences that flow from it. He says in verse 10, But they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and fought against them. Sadly, Israel's rebellion was against the backdrop of God doing everything for them. It wasn't like he was this tyrant that was domineering over them and they were trying to get out from under him. He had provided everything. And yet they rebelled. And Israel's forgetfulness and therefore their ungratefulness to God's covenant love and mercy resulted in this rebellion that grieved the heart of God. And what was God's response? To bring discipline through judgment. He gave His people over to their desires because there's a point in which God says, if that's what you want, I'll give it over to you. And so that's what we see Him doing here. Their Savior became their enemy. And even though Israel experienced exile at the hands of both the Assyrians and the Babylonians, their greater problem was with the one whom they'd sinned against and the one who was administering that punishment. And as Ray Ortland rightly notes, he says, When the church is knocked back on the defensive by surrounding social forces, the problem is not the church's relationship with those surrounding forces. The problem is the church's relationship with God. And that is the reality here with Israel. See, God disciplines those whom He loves. Proverbs 3 tells us, For the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father of the Son in whom He delights. God's purpose in allowing Israel to fall into exile at the hands of their enemies was to chasten them back to fidelity to Himself. All their years in captivity was meant to turn them back from drifting away and rebelling back to the God who loved them and who had provided for them. 
And see, Isaiah here, he's bemoaning, he's lamenting Israel's rebellion. And God's discipline of Israel has this jarring effect as Isaiah, the voice of God's people, then begins to reflect back on the glory days with Moses. And Isaiah recalls how things used to be, and they used to be so much better under the mediator Moses back then. And he asks, where is he who brought them up out of the sea? Where is he who put them in the midst with his Holy Spirit? Who divided the waters before them? Who gave them rest? You see, the question that Isaiah is asking and pleading before God is, why not now, God? Where are you? Why don't you return to us? Isaiah, though knowing they're deserving of God's punishment because of their sin, he's petitioning the Lord to make good on his promises. And in verse 14, it's as if Isaiah is essentially saying, God, you delivered your people out of Egypt and you brought them into the promised land and by your spirit gave them rest. But it was all that for nothing? Has your character changed? Will you not walk with your people, at least for your own glory, if for nothing else? Remembering is the first step to repentance. And as Jesus told the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, you've forgotten your first love. You've abandoned him. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do all the works you did at first. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, we're pursuing our own desires. We're forgetting the God who walks with us and who's provided for us. But thankfully, God loves his children so much that he's willing to afflict us. He's willing to afflict us so that we might remember and turn from our rebellion. And as Paul reminds us in Romans 2, it's the gospel. It's God's kindness. It's his fatherly discipline that leads us to repentance and renewal in our hearts. What rebellion do we need to own considering where we are this day? How often, if ever, do we grieve and lament over our sin and rebellion against our God? See, lament is meant to turn us back to God instead of running away from God. But we allow His loving kindness, expressed through His fatherly discipline, to lead us to repentance and renewed confidence in His restorative work in our hearts. And what specific ways do we, not only as individuals, but even corporately as a church, do we need to lament our rebellion and our sin and repent over our sin? And what do we need to remember so that we don't forget our first love of the Lord Jesus Christ? Fifty years ago, in this church, God brought revival and renewal through the lay renewal. And the outpouring of the Spirit was evident as men, women, and children came to saving knowledge and faith in Christ. And the impact of that renewal filtered out into the community and down into the city as relationships were built. And even around the world as missions efforts went forth and the gospel was proclaimed. Might we, like Isaiah, begin to plead with God and cry out to God, Why not now? Why not here at LNPC that you would pour out your spirit, that you would renew our hearts with a fresh wind of your spirit in our lives, that we'd be awakened from idleness and the love of comfort, and that we'd be inflamed for his zeal, for himself and for his gospel. Renewal will only come as we lament our sin and we see the kindness of God that brings us to repentance and pleading for him to pour out his spirit. 
And lastly, we see that true renewal comes as God's, the hearts of God's people cling to his covenant mercy, even in the midst of our failures. Verses 15 through 19, 19, Isaiah, he's calling upon God to make good on his promise that he's made. God, remember your people and the promises you've given to us. In verse 15, there's this discontentedness that God is so far off and they want him to come near to him. And then even in verse 16, we see that though they're the children of Abraham and the children of Israel, they've drifted so far that they don't even look like the people of God. They've become indistinguishable from the rest of the nations. And Israel's prayer is a longing, excuse me, Isaiah's prayer is a longing for them to return to form. That they might be that nation that is a light to the other nations. And Isaiah reminds God that despite their current state, he remains their father and he is their redeemer. They want to see his power and his might return and be unleashed upon them. They don't want God to withhold his tenderness because of their sinfulness. And there's this expression of sorrow that God would return for the sake of his kingdom to be restored and for the sake of his beloved people. And then you look at verse 17 and at first glance it appears that Isaiah is blaming God for their wondering and for their hardening of heart. But Isaiah is not blaming God for Israel's failure and the consequences they're experiencing. Actually, Isaiah knows that God's disciplining hand is at work. But what Isaiah knows is that unless God intervenes, unless he turns back to his people... They are sunk. And that's why he cries out, Return for the sake of your servants, for the tribes of your heritage. And we, just like Israel, we are fully and totally dependent upon God to move and to act. See, when we wander from him and we no longer revere him as we should, we cannot hope in ourselves because we're going to continue to drift and continue to rebel. Our hope is that in His mercy, God will remember us and He will turn His face to us. Isaiah responds as if to say, restore us not because we're deserving of anything. We deserve the consequences you're giving us. But return for the sake of your name so that your kingdom might be built. Where have our hearts become hardened and insensitive to the Word and the Spirit in our lives? In what ways are we resisting the Spirit's work to bring renewal in our hearts because we want to cling to those sins that we love and don't want to give over and pursuing of our own passions and our own kingdom work rather than submitting to the Lord? Do we as a church, do we bear the resemblance of the holiness of God in which we profess or more like the culture in which we live? Are we, like Israel, are we becoming indistinguishable from the non-believing culture around us? The pathway to renewal necessarily runs through repentance. Do you ever find yourself feeling dejected and discouraged as you look at the failures in your own life and as you see your current sad state of circumstances? Or even looking at the church or looking at the state of our country? What do you do? Where do you go with those sentiments when you have those? Are you content to just kind of go along with the status quo and say, well, I guess this is just going to have to be this way until Jesus comes back. I don't really see much change. Now, through Christ's atoning work on the cross that brought real redemption, real forgiveness from failure in every one of our sins, we should have great hope because the victory is ours in Christ. It's precisely because God, because of his merciful character and being a promise-keeping God that he is, 
that we should hunger for more of him, more of his power, more of his presence in our midst. Let us repent from a heart attitude of mediocrity, an attitude of indifference, that we might cry out for an earth-shattering experience of God's renewed power and presence in our lives, in our own hearts, as we come through dependent prayer to him, lamenting and sorrow over our sin, and then clinging to his promises that are laid out in the gospel. I was reading an article a while back, and the author was talking about seeing the face of God. And he wrote this, he said, Imagine God appeared to you and said, I'll make a deal with you if you wish. I'll give you anything and everything you ask. Pleasure, power, honor, wealth, freedom, even peace of mind, and even a good conscience. Nothing will be a sin. Nothing will be forbidden. Nothing will be impossible for you. And you'll never be bored and you'll never die. Only this, you will never see my face. And he goes on to say, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, my heart stops at that last line. Despite all the other apparent joys offered to us, we realize that they are not our true heart's desire. We want to see the face of God, our creator and maker. We may not know it, but he's the cause of our homesickness. His face is home. Are you feeling homesick this morning? Are you longing to see the face of your Savior? Renewal only comes by the sovereign hand of God working through his spirit. And our great hope is not more of ourselves. It's more of God himself. And only as we remember his covenant love and mercy and we turn from our sin, we're accepting his kind discipline in our lives and we cling to his promises, will we experience that renewal in our hearts and in our families and in this place at LNPC and in our city and around the world? May we cry out for a sovereign, extraordinary work of God whereby he saves sinners in our midst and he breathes new life through his covenant people. May we marvel at who God is and what he has done for us in the past as we long for more of him in the present, as we wait that future day when he comes and he says those words that we've been longing to hear. Welcome home, my beloved. Welcome home. Let's pray. Father, truly our only hope against drifting and forgetfulness And our rebellion is you, Lord Jesus, you alone. Holy Spirit, would you call to mind often the many ways that you have sustained us by your grace and accompanied us all through our past. Lord, may your fatherly discipline turn us to repentance and renewed obedience. Lord, would you bring renewal in our hearts? Bring renewal so that it changes in our families. It brings change in our marriages to our children And even changes the posture in which we engage with our community for the sake of your glory. Lord, would you hold us fast all the way until that day that you return and you welcome us home. We pray that you would do this for our good and for the sake of your glory. Amen.